invite you to take your scriptures and turn back to Psalm 100, if you would, please, that we read a little earlier. I don't know if you, how many of you are familiar, maybe if you're my age or older, you'll be familiar with Paul Harvey. Paul Harvey had a radio program from 1951 to 2008. At times, at its peak, 24 million people a week listened to Paul Harvey. And the name of his radio program was The Rest of the Story. Um, He used often historical vignettes about famous people, and he would tell you details about their lives without mentioning their name. And you weren't even really sure who he was talking with because he came up with things about their lives that you weren't familiar with, things that they weren't famous for. And then at the end, he would tell you a little bit more about what you did know. And it usually had some surprising twist at the end of the story. And then Harvey's trademark finale was, and now you know the rest of the story. As I read Psalm 100 and 100 this week, I, I felt like I was listening to Paul Harvey. Um, there's a story within a story to this psalm. Because my whole life, and maybe you too... And, and Brian read the title of it, A Psalm of Thanksgiving. I, I've always heard Psalm 100. In fact, a lot of people love it. I had people come up this morning and tell me, knowing I was going to do it, that they love this psalm. And people do, but they, it's usually around Thanksgiving or some Thanksgiving occasion because that verse 4 has the reference to Thanksgiving twice in it. And it's a well-known Thanksgiving psalm. But for me, as I read this passage and studied it out, I came to realize that I think this psalm is what I would call the psalm Mount Carmel of all the psalms. You say, the Mount Carmel, what does that mean? Well, Psalm 100 is structured this way. Look at your text. There are seven imperatives or commands about worshiping God. And here's how the structure goes. Stay with me, this matters a lot, actually. In verses 1 and 2, there are three commands. In verses 4 and 5... There are three commands followed by a reason for them. But in the middle, there is one command in verse 3, and it's the center of the whole thing. Three before, three commands before verse 3, three commands afterwards. And the climax, the very center of this passage, this psalm on worship, is the verse which says this, Know that the Lord, He is God. Now, that may not mean a lot to you per se, but it's very, very significant in the scriptures because there is only one other time in the entire Bible that that exact phrase is used. And I believe the psalmist knew that phrase, knew that story, and purposely made it the very center of the psalm for a reason. The only other time that is ever used is in 1 Kings chapter 18. And you, I think you're familiar with the story. It's also a very critical worship passage about how to worship God and truthfully how not to worship him. It's the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel with all 450 prophets of Baal. That's why I call this psalm the Mount Carmel of the Psalms. And you know the story. Elijah challenged King Ahab to bring all of his prophets. He would be the only prophet of God there on that day. And they built an altar and he restored the altar of God and they both had a bull and they both sacrificed. And you know the story about how the prophets of Baal for hours cried out and Baal never did anything. And then God, through Elijah, calls the people near and he says to them, the one who can bring down fire from heaven is the God 
And Elijah prays and fire comes down from heaven. And not just any fire, but the fire that consumes the bull. It consumes the stones. It consumes the dirt. It consumes all the water. They drenched around it. I mean, everything is consumed. And when the people of God see that, they fall down on their faces. And in 1 Kings 8, uh, 18 and verse 39, here's what they say on their faces. The Lord, he is God. And they say it twice. The Lord, he is God. It's double usage. It's emphatic. They, were, they had made a choice that day. See, Baal, he couldn't do it. But the true God, the God of the Bible, could. And here's how they explained or expressed that he was the one true living God. And there were no other gods. The phrase, the Lord, he is God, is the phrase that they used. And you come to this text in the middle of book four of the Psalms, all about worship. And I believe this psalmist is calling us to worship the one true God only, just like Elijah on Mount Carmel that day was calling to the people of God. And here's what he wants. Rebuild the altar. Put God back at the center of your life. Put God back at the center of your church. And you know where that starts? It starts with worship. See, the psalmist wants us to know this morning this truth. The Lord is the only God. Let me say it again. The Lord is the only God who is worthy of all of your worship. I would tell you because he put that little phrase about the Mount Carmel incident in the middle of that psalm. Here's what he would tell you. You can't worship at Mount Zion until you first go to Mount Carmel. You can't ascend to the temple of God until you have decided, hear me, you have decided that there is only one God in your life and you will orient your life around him completely. See, listen to this truth. You can only worship God properly when you worship God only. Psalm 100 at the center is a Mount Carmel experience that God wants to share with everyone who is here this morning. We might call it a showdown, a spiritual showdown. Our movies are filled with them. Everyone loves them. The gunfight at OK Corral. You got Luke Skywalker versus Darth Vader. You got Rocky Balboa, Ivan Drago against him. You got, you got movie after movie. It's the main characters, the good one and the bad one. And they show off, you know, have a showdown. And, and, and here, in a biblical sense, you've got God versus Baal. And Elijah says to the people on that day, here's your choice. There are only two options this morning for everyone here, just like on that day. If God is God, then worship him. But if Baal is God, worship him. See, Elijah says, see, God won't have it any other way. There are only two options. It's either God or some other God. But see, Israel on that day, can I say, Unfortunately, like some even of God's people, they're looking for a third option. See, he tells them, worship Baal or worship God. And here's what the Bible says. And the people were silent. See, they didn't want to voice or vocalize their choice. They wanted the third option. And here's what it was. Elijah says it's either God or Baal. And they say it's God and Baal. See, they, they want both. And there are God's people who wouldn't verbally say this, but with their life they say this. Why do I have to choose? Why can't it be both? 
because a lot of God's people at times live under the illusion of spiritual neutrality. They think that they can worship God on Sunday and bail on Monday, Tuesday, and so forth. See, Psalm 100 is a conflict. You know why? Because it confronts us. It confronts us with the very center of the psalm and the Mount Carmel story to make a choice. And for us to make the choice, or not to make the choice, I should say, is lame. What do you mean by that? Elijah says in 1 Kings 18.21 to Israel, why do you limp, literally in Hebrew, why do you limp between two opinions? See, they were straddling the fence, we would say today. They wanted to have their cake and eat it too when it came to worship. They wanted to show up on Sunday. They wouldn't miss that. They brought their Bible. They looked good. But on Monday through Saturday, they worshipped everything and everyone else, the Baals. See, God says it's called limping. It's literally the word for being lame. I know in our culture today, someone says, I know you're lame. That means one thing. But it ain't too far off when it comes to worship. Some of God's people, perhaps you, see, we limp along trying to have a spiritually neutral life. We want God in our life, but we don't really want him to control everything. But when we really need him, we'd like to have him come into our life, especially when we need fire from heaven. We really want to see what he can do. But see, we're not really wanting to be committed or worship him alone, but he is amongst the gods that we serve. I think it's ironic that Elijah rebuilds the altar in 1 Kings 18, and the Bible goes into this detail. It says he takes 12 stones. It says one for each of the 12 sons of Jacob, the tribes of Israel. And he says he numbers them according to the sons of Jacob. And then he says, according to the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. Now he calls on the sons of Jacob, but he says, then I named you Israel. See, his Jacob name used to be supplanter, deceiver. But when he got his life right, when he started worshiping God and really got serious about it, God says, I'm going to change your name. And his name was changed to Israel, which means prince with God. That story about the name change that Elijah alludes to happened at a place called Peniel in Genesis 32. A man appeared to Jacob in the middle of the night before he was to go see Esau. He thought his life was going to be over. He wrestles with this man all night, and finally he can't, he, 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 the man can't overcome him, so the man puts the, Jacob's hip out of socket. And we realize later on it's a, it's a Christophany, it's Jesus, and he came to wrestle with Jacob and, and have him struggle where, where God really was in his life. And from that day on, his life was changed, his worship was changed, and he became the man of God that God wanted him to be, but for the rest of his life, he limped. See, he limped as a result of that worship war he had with God. Elijah calls on that story in that text, and he says, you know what? You're limping today, not because you've been changed, because you haven't been changed. See, Jacob had to make a choice at Peniel. Israel had to make a choice on Mount Carmel. And God brought you here today because at Faith Baptist Church in Hamilton, he wants you to make a choice. He brought you here to confront you with this. When will you start worshiping me only? Only. 
That's why the center of the psalm says this. Know this, that the Lord, he is God. The center of worship is always knowing and worshiping God alone. See, that's what Elijah prayed. He prayed on that day this prayer. Listen, Lord, that they might know that you are the only God in Israel. That's what, and, and see, knowing in the Bible, whether it's the story of Elijah, whether it's Psalm 100, it's not just intellectual. See, you know, if you're here this morning, that the Lord is God. You know that intellectually. But in Hebrew, living it and knowing it intellectually were the same thing. They didn't do it like we do today, where I can know something but not actually do any of it. For them, they were equal things. And here's what his prayer was. Here's what Psalm 100 is about. That Faith Baptist Church would be filled with people who worship God on Sunday because they've been worshiping him every day up until that time. That it's not just that we know him intellectually on Sunday and can sing songs to him. No, he says that we know him. We know him because our lives are lived for him. Everything is about him and surrounds him. But see, that can't happen in your life or mine if there are bales, if we're limping, if we're living a lame spirituality. See, bales, if you want to ask yourself the question, well, Pastor Walker, how do I know if I have God and bales in my life? Baal was a God that really isn't so much of a name it just means spiritual Lord. Baal, they had bales for everything. They had bales for storms, rain, thunder, lightning. In fact, Baal's geographical territory, because other than Yahweh, the true biblical God, all the other gods in the ancient Near East had territories. And they could go this far, but they couldn't spread out. But see, God of the earth, all the earth, it says in verse 1, he was the God over everything. But this was Baal's home turf. So you want to talk about spiritual showdown See, Baal, this was his home territory. This was where he was at. And he controlled supposedly everything. So to have lightning come down from the sky and cause fire should have been right up his alley. But on that day, they called out to him and they said, no voice was heard. No one came. No one gave any attention. You know why? Because he wasn't truly a real God. But they had gods for lightning, for thunder, for storms, for water, for plants. They had military bales. They literally had, and I'm using our vernacular, he had party bales for all kinds of sexual and you know, uh, perversions. They had bales to cover just about everything. Wow, things haven't changed too much, have they? We have our bales too, don't we? Pleasure bales, power bales, bales for possessions, bales for pride, Bales for popularity. We have our own bales. See, we want God, but we also want to be accepted, and we want people to like us, and we want to have this. And I want God, but I can't let that stand in front of this vacation or this home I might have. or this. See, we have God. It's not that we don't want him at all in our lives. But the bales, see, they're there, and they come in all kinds of forms. Let me tell you about Baal. Can I real quickly? In a Baal relationship, you start off thinking that you're in control. That you have power over the Baal and he's going to give you what you want when you want it. That's why the people, when it's time for their sacrifice who worship Baal, 
They brought the bull out. And the Bible says in verse 26 of chapter 18, they start dancing. Now, this is crazy, but you know the dancing word in Hebrew is the same word, limp. They started limping around the altar. They started moving around because I think Elijah wanted you to know that their worship of Baal is lame. The only reason they're doing it is because they don't, want, they don't think they can get from the true God what they want when they want. So they limp around and hope that this other God, and see, they thought they could control him. They thought that he would do what they needed in the time that they needed. But on that day, there was no voice. There was no one who paid attention. There was no fire that came down from heaven. And what they came to realize, hear me, is what you and I realize when we have bales in our lives and in our hearts, is that eventually the roles switch. And the bales, they become those who are behind the wheel. They're in the driver's seat. So to get what we want and keep it coming, we start limping around. We keep adding on. We keep asking. We keep dancing around. And you know, it gets sad Because what happens when you depend on those idols is they don't show up. And they don't give you what you want. And then you become desperate. And the limping in the story becomes cutting. And the Bible says they thought they needed to perform more to get his attention. So they took short knives and started cutting themselves. I mean, cutting themselves, seriously cutting themselves to the point in 1 Kings 18.36, it says, and until their blood gushed out everywhere. See, that's what bales do to you. See, they get you hooked on what they can give you, and then they don't show up. And then they say, well, you know what? You better perform more. You better do more. You better, see, because The bales say this, I want to see your blood run. See, I want to see you cut yourself. I want you to know if I'm going to keep doing what you want, you're going to have to pay the price for it. Contrast that, can I say this morning, with the one true living God. Did you notice on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18, did you notice where the fire, when it comes down, actually falls? Did you notice it didn't fall on the people. And you know why? Because God had made a sacrifice. See, God had made a sacrifice. If there was no sacrifice on that altar that day, the fire from heaven would have come down and consumed the people, but it didn't. You know why? Because there is only one God. There's only one God who does not require or make people slash themselves. He is slashed and cut for them. See, he's cut for them. The true God doesn't want your blood to run. Instead, he offers his blood, the blood of his son, to run. The blood of his son runs for you and for me. That's what Jesus did. Now, now see, listen, when you read that middle verse now, ready? A story within a story. See, the Lord, he is God. You know what the psalmist says? Come back to him. How do I know if I... See, the Bible says, God, Elijah prays, let them know that the Lord, he is God, and turn their heart back. This psalm this morning is about you coming back to God and making him and him alone the center of everything in your life. And when that happens, hear me, when you choose like they did on that day, 
When you say to God, you are God, you're the only one. Here's what he says. We are his. See the next phrase? He is God. Three words, identity statement. And then your identity statement. We are his. We're his. At the heart of true worship is the fact that we belong to God. We are his. Notice the pronouns. They just keep coming. His people, sheep of his pasture. See, his blood covers our sins. You know what that means? That means we're his people. And for Israel and their history, listen, that wasn't always true. They weren't always his, his people. He chose them to be his people. See, read the prophets. Read Hosea. You were once not the people of God, and now you are the people of God. It was according to God's gracious mercy. See, he made them his people, and it was the sacrifice that allowed them to be God's people. He says, you are my sheep, and now you're in my pasture. And God says, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide for you. See who God is? See Here's what God would say. You give your life to me this morning. You put me at the center. You don't need to perform. I've done the performance. See, you don't need to cut yourself. See, my son was cut for you. See, that's what he says. You can stop all that. You can get rid of the despair. You can get rid of the desperation. And you can come to a God that is in your, he's in your, you're in his family and he's in yours. And he will provide everything that you need. But let let me tell you how the story ends. Elijah has all the people take the 450 prophets of Baal, march them down to the river, and every one of them are killed. You say, why in the world would you do that? Because here's what Elijah's telling you. He's not really God until all the idols are gone. They're all gone. You see, here's how you know that God, he is Lord. He is God in your life. When he's really the center, that you will not hold on to them. As God presents these truths to you this morning, and he says, let me tell you the idols in your life, the bales that you hold on to. It's me and them, and it has to be me or them. And you say, God, I choose you. See, when that happens, you will get rid of the things that have become bales in your life, the things on the internet, the money that you have to have. See, all the things that you think are important in life, see, you'll be willing to get rid of them. And that's why the center of this psalm has that verse in that story. Why? Because you're not ready... You're not ready to do the rest of the psalm and give God the worship he deserves until he first has all of you. See, you're ready to come to Mount Zion when you've come to Mount Carmel first. And the psalmist would say, and now you know the rest of the story. You know the story which this psalm is built on. Now you're ready to worship God. You know why? Because he has your whole heart. And you've come back to him. See, our, our main thesis, the Lord is the only God worthy of all of your worship. And now, in the few minutes we have left, let me show you how that looks. Let me show you what would happen on Sunday morning when you come to church, what it would really look like. He says there are two reasons why God is the only God who is worthy, why you should make him the center, why you should do what they did on Mount Carmel that day. You should do that. Here's, here's the two reasons. Number one, real quick, who he is, and number two, what he's done. Let's look at each of those sets of three commands. Here's what he says, who he is, verse one. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, 
all the earth. That is the very first commandment. Now, I know that for everybody else, make a joyful noise usually means that you are trying to sing, but you can't hold it on tune, and you should make a joyful noise anyways. Well, that's funny, but it's not the point of it. Um, make a joyful noise to the Lord was what they did in other passages of Scripture using that phrase when the king was anointed, when he was crowned and became king. Everyone got together and everyone started to shout and they would make a joyful... See, it's not just make a joyful noise of anything you want or even some song. It was a joyful noise because when you came to the temple, you realized that the king was there. The king was there. And it was all about the king on those days. All about the king. See, let me tell you straight. Sunday morning isn't about you. It's not about me. It's about him. It's about King Jesus. See, today we have worship services that are all about Christians. And the main thing they want when they come to church is to receive something from God. They want a spiritual experience, an emotional feeling or a high. They want a spiritual pep talk that just makes them feel better about their lives. They don't want to be uncomfortable and made to think about changing their lives. And so a lot of churches today have services that have a concert-like atmosphere, mall facilities, individualistic expectations, and I would say they're limping. They're limping. Whereas Psalm 100, in contrast, hear me, it pictures worship completely different. It pictures a group of people who have been to Mount Carmel, who have come to the realization that the only true God worthy of my worship is the one true living God of the Bible, And I don't come to receive things from him primarily. I come to respond to him. See, that's why the psalmist says this. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. It's a response. It's a command to say, look at the king. Look how awesome he is. Look how great he is. Respond to him. See, church is about primarily giving glory to God, not getting good from God. Now, thankfully, we do get that but it's not why we come. I don't come to get, I come to give. See, the first three commands in Psalm 100 verses 1 through 2 are about how to respond to who God is. And so when we walk in the doors and we come into church, you know what? I'm not saying, hey, God, make me feel better. I had a really bad week. I hope you can pick me up. No, this is about, hey, God, all week long, it's been a bad week, but I've been thinking about you and how great you are. And throughout this whole week, even though it was rough, you brought me here. And I want to tell you, you are awesome. You are awesome. So here's what the Bible says. The king's here this morning. And in the Old Testament, they would say this when they shouted a joyful noise. Long live the king. You go to Buckingham Palace to this day, and I have. When the queen comes out on the balcony, they say the same thing. All these years later, long live the queen. Why? Because here's the acknowledgement. You are the king, which means we are your people. Every Sunday, including today, we come to church, and here's the opportunity you have. The opportunity to say, God, you are king, I am not. You have authority on everything that took place in my life this week all the way up to Sunday. And I want you to know you rule. You rule in everything in my life. I don't understand everything that happened. I don't mean I don't even like everything that happened. But here's what I know, God. I'm here to declare I'm not king. I don't call the shots. You do. You have the authority in my life. You're the authority in my family, my finances, my friendships, my relationships, 
All the earth, he says, should be like this. That means all the nations. That doesn't mean no matter what your gender, your background, your skin color, your language, your social status. Here's what he says. Everybody who wants to worship God comes and says this. He's king. And so the second one is this. Not surprisingly, serve the Lord with gladness. Serve him. Do you know that's why we call it worship services? We're having a worship service this morning. Why? Because in the Hebrew mind, worshiping God and serving him were not separated as if somehow you could come and worship but never serve him. To them, they were synonymous. See, to worship God was to serve him, to work for him, and to do it, listen, with gladness. So we don't sing songs and serve him and junior church or nursery or a ministry of the church say we don't do it reluctantly we don't do it religiously we don't do it because we're under compulsion we don't do it because if we don't maybe something bad will happen in my life no we do it with gladness why because we've been to mount carmel he's his blood ran for us he's delivered us he's for when we were limping he was loving and see it moves us it moves us to say, you're king, and I want to worship you, and I want to serve you. And it says, do it with, come into his presence with singing. I have found this. What you sing about, you are about. I mean, our day is filled with singing. I mean, you can't hardly go anywhere. Someone's listening to music, doing something like that. Listen, I wonder sometimes, listen, I really do. I wonder if we worship God and use music to do it. Or do we use God and worship music? Because we can't stop listening to it. We expect it. We have expectations. It should be this kind of music, professionally done. And, and we want it to move us. And if we have to sing a song that we're not liking or familiar with, see, it doesn't move us. Why? Because I wonder where it's coming from. I wonder what kind of heart we have. Because what you praise, you prize. And what you sing about, you are about. And I have... Real questions in my mind, don't you? How is it that God's people sing the Lord's songs on Sunday, but Baal's songs all through the week? I don't understand. I, I actually do because it's limping spirituality. It's lame worship because we really haven't come in our hearts and minds to understand fully who he is. The psalmist says, if you've been to Mount Carmel and you've seen him, and you know what he's done for you. You know what you're going to do? You're going to worship him with everything because of who he is. And we've seen he is Lord. He is king. He is master. He is creator. He made us, not ourselves. He's the shepherd. See, see the, here's what the psalmist says. Look at all that he is. Look who he is. Don't you know this very transcendent God who is all of these things loves you, cares for you, died for you. So on one side of this little story in the middle, three commands. You know why God alone deserves all of your worship? Number one, because of who he is. Lastly, but because of what he's done. Three more imperatives follow the center verse. And in verse four, it reads this. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Can you circle it? Look at this. His gates, his courts, his name, his steadfast love, his faithfulness. Do you get it? Do you understand it? When you've been Mount Carmel and now you go to Mount Zion, it's all about him. 
Everything is about him. Everything in your life surrounds him, revolves around him. He is the sun in the solar system of your soul. So it's not enough, is it? Listen, to worship the one true God alone is not enough just to kill the idols or the bales in your life. That is good. That's only half the equation. To really worship God is to kill the bales and to lift up and live for the true king. We must do both. And so it says, here's what it looks like when limp worship and lame worship is gone and the prophets and the bales and the gods that are false in your life are gone. Here's what it looks like. You will enter his gates with thanksgiving. You will start to be grateful and thankful for him. It won't be, God, I'm I'm so complaining, critical, judgmental, negative. Oh, God, why don't you do this? And God, and I got it. No, you know, it's gratitude. It's thanksgiving that overcomes. Why? Because God is the ground of all of our thanksgiving. But our culture and humanity at large, and perhaps even some of us, we have a selfie problem. We really do. Romans 1.21 puts it this way. Although they knew God, they did not worship him as God, but were unthankful. See, when you come to Carmel and you recognize who he is and you begin to see what he's done, you can't help but express it with gratitude and thanksgiving. 2 Timothy 3.2 says, Know this, in the last days men will be, and here's one's on the list, unthankful. Can I tell you this? Hear me. A thankful heart is not just a problem with selfishness. It is a sin against a good God. Did you see verse 5? Why should we be grateful? Because he's good. Because he's good. Can I tell you this? Be thankful when things are good and when they're not because he's always good. Do you know what I found as I read the pages of Scripture? Thanksgiving, the Bible never says Thanksgiving will be easy. There will be showdowns. There will be bales that you have to kill. There will be obstacles in your life. There will be difficulties. You're going to have to fight to do it. But here's what he says. Be thankful with no conditions on it. It's not going to be easy. Not when you get the diagnosis as cancer. Not when you're incredibly tired and you can hardly want to get out of bed to come to church. Not when you've lost your job and you don't know how you're going to pay the mortgage. Not when your marriage might not make it another week. See, the Bible never said Thanksgiving would be easy, but the Bible never said it was optional either. And it's never optional when you know who God is and what he's done for you. He's a good God. He's good and he does good. Can I say this? You may be lame to him, but he's never lame to you. And the Bible says at the close of this little psalm, the little word four, verse five, here's the reason why you should enter his gates. When you come to church, no matter what kind of week you've had, you should say, oh God, I'm excited about you. You. And tell you, I want you to know you're my king, you're my God, you're my Lord, you're my center, you're my everything. I'm excited about that. And here's the reason, verse five says, for the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever in his faithfulness to all generations. You know why he's good? Because his love is unfailing. Said in Hebrew, it means a love that keeps going on, a love that keeps loving you when you don't love back. 
And he says it'll endure. For, it's forever love. You and I are fickle and we'll love God more sometimes than others. Depends on what he's doing in our life. But here's what the psalmist says. When you really know him and you've been to Mount Carmel, here's, you'll know that God is good and his steadfast love is always there for you. And he is faithful, reliable. You can count on him. See, the bales, when you really needed them, they couldn't bring down the fire. They truly couldn't meet the needs. But that's never our God. Our God is faithful. You can count on him to be, how long? To all generations, all of them. You know, when I look at those little characteristics of God and why we should be so thankful and to love him and worship him, and you know what I found out? They are all the things that the Baals are not. The Baals don't keep loving you. They want your blood. See, but God says, I keep loving you, and I'm good to you, and I'm faithful to you. And this is the worship you bring me? This is what you really think of me? All I deserve, you think, is this? Oh, he's, can I tell you? He's worth getting here early for. He's worth staying late. He's worth praying. He's worth changing your calendar and your priorities. He's worth a commitment that puts him above everyone and everything else in your life. He's worthy of it. He's worthy of your sacrifice. He's worthy of you giving money. He's worthy of you giving time. He's worthy. He's worthy. The bales are not. And if you have been to Mount Carmel, you would know that because your heart would be turned back to him. See, we need Mount Carmel before we go to Mount Zion because on Mount Carmel we say he is God and we are his. Do you know him like that? Do you worship him like that? Let's pray. Our Father, please forgive us. You are infinitely valuable. Who can know your worth? It far surpasses rubies and diamonds and all the things, all the things that may be compared to you are nothing, nothing, including all the bales. I pray for God's people this morning who are limping. They want a third option. They want God and Baal not God or Baal. I pray, Father, today would be the day that we would rise up and shout, the Lord, he is God. He is God. And that we would seek to destroy every single idol in our life because you alone are God. And you alone are worthy of all of our praise. May our lives as individuals, may our lives as families, may our lives as a church worship you and center on you. Father, for who you are and for what you've done for us in your son, King Jesus, blessed be his name. Oh, Father, change us. Help us not to limp or to be lame, but to have lives of love that worship you supremely in the affections of our heart. And we'll thank you for that rich blessing. 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen.